0: Welcome to Life Point Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4 through 17. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This
1: morning we're going to continue our study of one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, the Book of Jonah. Now, often you think of this as a children's story, but I want to assure you that it is a very serious lesson for teens and for adults who are seeking to follow Jesus Christ. Last week, we learned that this Book of Jonah, with just four small chapters, is not just an allegory, it's not a myth. It is a true story, and these have important lessons for us to discover and to apply to our lives today. We learned that this is a prophetic narrative, a story with a gospel message. Now last week in the first episode of this story, we learned that God called the prophet Jonah to go and preach to the wicked city of Nineveh, calling on them to repent of their sins. But Jonah, in his arrogant pride as a Jewish man, a member of the chosen people of God, He just could not imagine that God could ask him to do such a thing. As far as he was concerned, the Ninevites were the enemy of Israel, and therefore the enemy of God. And therefore they should be judged and punished, not preached to to repent. I don't think... Jonah had ever heard a worship service like we heard today. He didn't somehow hear God is good all the time. In fact, Jonah seemed to be so repulsed by what God was asking him to do, he decided to flee from the presence of God and deliberately refuse to obey God's specific command. So Jonah goes down to Joppa. Now Joppa is the chief city, seaport of the land of Israel, located not far from where Tel Aviv Aviv is today. And he books a passage headed for Tarshish. And that is going in the wrong direction, as far away from Nineveh as he can get, as he flees from the presence of God doing everything he can to escape the voice of God telling him to do something he thought was just plain unthinkable. Now this week, in the second episode of this story, we see the dangers of his disobedience. This is not a a sermon like an exegesis of a text that we often do from a New Testament letter to Romans or Philippians or something, we will be looking at the scenes of a story. And as we go along and we see how this story moves along, we will discover lessons of truth that are revealed to us and how they should apply to us. So the first scene that we see in our story today is found in verses four through six. And we see the impact of Jonah's disobedience. First impact is that his disobedience provokes God to pursue him relentlessly. Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He has escaped from the land of Israel, and he has now gone down to the sea, and he's booked passage on a ship that is now out on the open waters of the Mediterranean Sea. It makes me wonder what he's thinking. Hasn't he ever read the Psalms? He comes after David, and David wrote in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from the presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is light to you. Didn't he know that there is no place in all the universe where he can escape from the presence of God? But God is there on this ship, on the open waters of the Mediterranean, and God is working relentlessly to block Jonah's escape route. God uses his tools of the wind and the waves to impede the progress of this ship carrying Jonah. And God hurls, uh, you'll notice this word occurs several times in the text, God hurls the wind at the ship where Jonah is sleeping. It's the same word that is used when King Saul hurled his spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall. Psalm 107 is an amazing description of what God is doing here. Psalm 107, verse 23, Others went out to sea in ships, conducting trade on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he spoke and raised a tempest that lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens, then sunk to the depths. Their courage melted in their anguish. They reeled and staggered like drunkards, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He calmed the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced in the silence, and he guided them to the harbor they desired. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving devotion and his wonders to the sons of men. But not only does Jonah's disobedience provoke God to pursue him relentlessly, his disobedience put other lives at risk. You know, we are not isolated individuals when we rebel against God. Our disobedience will have impact on all of those around us—our families, our colleagues, our contacts, even our church—and we see clearly that Job's disobedience puts the sailors at risk. Now these sailors were probably Phoenician sailors. Phoenicians were very uh, skilled mariners. Their whole culture was based on the international trade as they uh, sailed from one port to another across the Mediterranean Sea. And so they knew what they were doing. <clears throat> they prepared for this sh- triv- this uh, voyage with meticulous care. They made sure all the pulleys and all the oars were in order and everything was stowed away and proper stacks underneath. Everything was in order and ready to go. And they had also checked the weather. Now I know they didn't have channel nine or channel four or seven, but they nevertheless, they were mariners, master mariners, and they knew how to read the signs. And they were not about to leave port unless it was favorable for them to make this voyage, and it wouldn't be threatening to them. So the storm that God sent, it was ferocious. It was unexpected, and it was unplanned, and it was life-threatening. And these master mariners were exceedingly afraid. Their fear is is manifest in several things. They cry out to their own gods. Now, the Phoenicians were polytheists. They had a god for every situation and every location and every kind of uh, duty you can imagine. They had a god for the sea and a god for the storm and a god for rain and a god for travel. And so we get this picture of the cacophony of shouts and cries of the sailors, oh God, whoever you are and wherever you are, please help us here, we're in deep trouble. And at the same time, The crew was casting all of their cargo that they had so carefully stowed away, and they were hurling it. (laughs) here's another word for hurling. Hurling it into the sea to lighten the weight so that the ship wouldn't be sinking deep down into the raging waves. The situation was desperate. It was chaotic. And they noticed that there was one passenger who was absent, doing nothing. In fact, he was asleep in the lower part of the ship. And the captain himself, it says, goes down to Jonah and says, wake up, get up, what are you thinking? Do something, pray to your God, whoever he is, perhaps he will have mercy and save us. They were trying to get everybody involved to try to find some way of escape. Our disobedience affects and puts people at risk. But notice, by contrast, Jonah, disobedience for him was exhausting. He was asleep on the lower deck of the ship. When all of this other stuff is going around, this is an amazing thing. All the noise of the wind buffeting the ship like a cork on the ocean waves, and the cries of the crew as they were calling out to their gods and as they were throwing cargo overboard, all this chaos and noise. And the ship was rocking back and forth, almost ready to sink. And Jonah is asleep through it all. It sort of reminds me of when Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee, and he was asleep during a very violent storm. Now Jesus' exhaustion came because he was tired, but he was able to sleep because he had absolute trust in his heavenly Father who would protect him and provide for him. But Jonah, He was sleeping the sleep of disobedience. He was exhausted. Let me tell you, disobedience is stressful and it's exhausting. Jesus said, come to me and take my yoke upon you and follow me and I will give you rest from all of the stress and all of the burdens of disobedience. Disobedience is always stressful and exhausting. In the second episode of this story, we see the consequences of Jonah's disobedience. Find this in verse seven through 10. You see, God works not only to pursue Jonah, but he works in order to expose his sin. You see, these sailors were in crisis mode, and their lives were at risk. They had already lost their cargo. This trip was going to be a bust with no profit, and they wanted to know who or what is to blame for this disaster. Now in their pagan religion, in their way of life, the way to find out who was to blame was to cast lots. Lots were in those days were probably little stones, maybe in the form of dice. On one side it was dark, black, and on the other side light. And when you tossed them, if it came up, light, then it was favorable to whatever question you were asking the gods. If it came up dark, then it was negative. If it came up half black, one black and one white, then the gods were saying, hold on, don't do anything for now. So they are casting lots. But what we need to know and remember about casting lots is found in Proverbs 16, 33. The lot lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This means that we can throw the dice, but God who is sovereign over all things, he even controls the roll of the dice. That's, that's an amazing thought. So, under the providence of God, then they cast the lots, it fell on Jonah, and his disobedience was exposed. You are to blame. And so the sailors immediately begin their investigation. Verse 8, tell us who you are. Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? In other words, what God do you pray to? So we know how to appease him or her or whoever it is so that he can save our life. But be sure of this. Scripture is very clear. Your sins will find you out. And God in his providence will work to expose you for your disobedience. And God can use even enemies to bring us back to himself. It's these pagan sailors who corner Jonah and force him to confess. And so, to his credit, Jonah does not hide his disobedience. He admits that he is a Hebrew, and that he fears the one and only God, which is rather doubtful, but he says that, who is the creator of all things, of heaven and earth, the sea and the sky and the mountains. And he admits that he is running away from the presence of this God, Yahweh, who knows all things. And when you read that, in verses nine and 10, Jonah, you read it and it's just sort of very calm. Yeah, I'm a Hebrew. Yeah, I fear the Lord. Yeah, I'm running away from him. It's, It's like it's no big deal to him. He doesn't seem to be afraid or concerned that he is disobeying the God he worships. I think he admits who he is and what he has done probably very reluctantly because God has cornered him into this confession. And it was a reluctant confession after all. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis. Do you remember how he came to the Lord? He did not, he was, had no desire to become a Christian. He was not seeking out Christ. But this is how he describes his conversion. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for even a second from my work the steady unrelenting approach of him, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in, and I admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. Perhaps, that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men and his compulsion is our liberation. Jonah reluctantly confesses, but his confession simply enrages and frustrates these pagan soldiers. It brings them great distress. Why? Because they actually believed in the power of this Yahweh God, who had power over the waves and the wind, and his power to destroy. They were terrified, verse 10. It says they were exceedingly fearful. And so they shouted at Jonah, what is this you have done? Now that is not a question. Look at the text. It's ending with an exclamation point. It was an accusation. And contrast that with Jonah, who said he feared the Lord, but in his heart he was not afraid to disobey Yahweh God. The consequences of our sins are never limited to ourselves. It will affect and impact others, and it will always be negative. The third scene in this story today about disobedience is found in verses 11 through 17. There is a price to be paid. There is a penalty for sin and disobedience. And how we respond is extremely important. We must admit disobedience to God is wrong. It is sin, and it must be paid for by the sacrifice of death. Look at verse 11. The sailors ask, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now notice the language here. What shall we do to you? You see, Jonah's sin required something to be done to him. Sin requires that something must be done. It must be prayed for. It cannot just be passed over. It must be paid for. It is costly. Until Jonah's sin is dealt with, the storm only grew in intensity. Isn't that how sin does? The longer we delay our confession, the more horrible the storm becomes. Now Jonah knew the solution. Verse twelve. Pick me up and hurl me, there we go, hurl again into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet down, will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah realized, for the sailors to be saved, he must be sacrificed. Now at this point, maybe you're asking, scratching your head like I did. or if Jonah knew that by his disobedience, he deserved to die, why didn't he just jump overboard himself? Why involve the sailors? They weren't responsible for his sin. Jonah, why don't you have a thought of compassion just once in your life for these sailors? Let them off the hook and do the deed and jump overboard. But disobedience doesn't just demand death. It demands the sacrifice of death, it demands something be done to you. Let me take the example of Jesus. Jesus came to die for our sins. So why couldn't he just have gone off by himself and committed suicide? Why was it that in God's plan, It had to involve Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers in the punishment of his death on the cross. Because his death must be a sacrifice. It must be something done to him. He must be killed as a sacrifice on the altar on the cross. And so Jonah's death must be a sacrifice for his his disobedience. He can't just commit suicide. He must be thrown overboard by others as a sacrifice for his sin. This puts the soldiers, you know, in a very difficult position. So now they are implicated in the death and the murder of their passenger on board. But through this, note, the sailors learn to fear and worship Almighty God. Verse 13 says that the sailors were reluctant to do what Jonah said and to throw him overboard. And so they worked harder and they rowed harder with all their might, trying to get back to land, but they could not. <laughs> it's amazing to me that these pagan sailors had more compassion than Jonah himself. They tried to rescue him, they tried to save him, but Jonah, he's fleeing from God because he refused to preach gospel compassion to the people of Nineveh. Sometimes pagan unbelievers show more mercy and grace than the people of God. But when it was evident that they could not row back to the shore, the tempest was too strong, the sailors prayed to this almighty God, Yahweh is the word that's used here, and they asked that he not punish them because of Jonah's sin. They prayed to God, O oh God, Yahweh, don't let us drown because of this man's life, and don't blame us for his death. You are God. Do what you think is best. So they pick up Jonah and hurl him into the sea. They hurl Jonah overboard just as God had hurled the wind at their ship. The same word. And immediately the sea ceased its raging. Calm. And silence covered them like a blanket. All that could be heard were the cries of the seagulls floating on the gentle air currents drifting by. The sailors were stunned. They were struck with awe at the power of God. And it says, they feared the Lord exceedingly. And so they offered sacrifices and made vows to obey this God who rules the wind and the waves. They worshiped Yahweh in a way that Jonah never did. But Jonah, just imagine, what do you think Jonah was thinking? when these sailors finally came and they took him by the shoulders and by the feet and they were ready to hurl him overboard. Why didn't Jonah stop everything right there, get down on his knees and ask God for forgiveness right then and there? He could have saved himself and the sailors if he had just humbled himself and prayed for forgiveness. He knew that God was a gracious God, slow to anger, ready to forgive. So why is Jonah so stubborn and unwilling to learn from this experience? Why is he ready to die by drowning just because he would not submit to God and his plan for his life? You know, he did not know that there was a fish down below waiting for a good dinner. He really believed this was the end. He really believed he was about to die, and his disobedience was ending in death. Do you think when he left Israel and to go down to Joppa to get away from God, did he realize it would come to this? Did he realize how much he had underestimated the power and the purposes of God? Was he surprised at how far God would go in pursuing him and punishing him? What did he learn about God in this moment of death? Or did he learn anything at all? I think that will come out in our future lessons about how much or how little he learned and how little his heart was changed. But what we need to remember now, whether you learn to worship God or ignore him, depends on how you respond to what is happening. You see, God was not finished with Jonah. And in his providence, God had brought him to this point of death. But by his grace, which is even greater than his punishment, He was ready to rescue him from sin. Verse 17, and that's where this story ends. God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I know this is part of the story where you're going to raise all kinds of questions, and we will talk about that in the next sermon. But for right now, Please, focus with me on the grace of God that's shown in this miracle. God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. All along, God had planned for and provided for Jonah's rescue from certain death. God pursued Jonah and even involved others in that pursuit. God forced Jonah to admit his sin. God demanded that Jonah pay the penalty for his sin. God was present at every step of this journey because it was God's purpose not to destroy Jonah, but to transform him and teach him and to use him. This morning, some of you are in situations that may feel like the winds of God are being hurled at you. Things are not going well. There are crises. There's disasters, illness, loss of family members, loss of a job, broken relationships. Many of you have shared that post-COVID, life has been difficult and sometimes overwhelming. Now these troubles, and what has happened to Jonah, will either move him closer to God, or will move him away from God. And the difference is how you respond to the working of God in your life. When the storms come, You can respond and move closer to him, as the sailors did, or you can respond and move away from him, as Jonah did. Now, I know some of you are not in deliberate, intentional rebellion against God. You're not like Jonah, fleeing from the presence of God. But there are some of us who are just drifting not doing anything intentional that would move us closer to God. You're not in rebellion, but you're not actively pursuing God either. And let me warn you, life cannot be lived in neutral. You are either moving closer to God right now or you're moving away from him one or the other, and God takes our rebellion and he takes our drifting away from him very seriously. Rebellion and drifting from God always leads to distress and sometimes eventually to death, but God is pursuing you and he's doing all he can to persuade you to trust him and to follow him in obedience. And his grace is big enough to swallow you up and to protect you and to save you. It's wide enough to cover all of the most atrocious sins that you can imagine. The words of the old hymn Grace, grace, God's grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace greater than our sin. It means that God's love and kindness are so big that that it can overcome any mistake we have made. It shows that even when we mess up, God is always ready to forgive us. His grace helps us to right our wrongs and to be transformed into his image. By believing in Jesus Christ, who made an enormous sacrifice of death for us, tells us that no matter what we have done in the past or what we're going through right now, God's love is there to help and to guide us. Jesus took all of your sins and mine into his own body, and he died, he was killed as a sacrifice on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for even the worst sins you can imagine. His grace is sufficient to cover and swallow all of our sins. So my appeal to you today is stop resisting God in your life. Stop drifting away from him. Make the decision today to repent and turn around and confess your sins and to take on the yoke of Christ and to follow him. Stop running away from him and turn toward him. Believe him, please trust him and obey him and give your life to him and he will give you rest. I want to pray For us now, and I want to use the words of Ephesians chapter 3, which are very appropriate to end this message. And I'm praying the words of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. I ask that out of the riches of your glory, that you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Then we, being rooted and grounded in love, will have power together with all the saints to to comprehend the length and the width and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. This is my prayer for us, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: That concludes Life Point Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.